And Shabbat Shalom, guys. We are live on Now You See TV with the Virtual House Church. Now, uh, we're going to wait for Rob Skiba. He's going to be joining us uh, in a few moments. Rob's running a little behind tonight, so he's going to jump on, and we're going to kick off Virtual House Church with tonight's tour portion, uh, which I believe is Ikev. Um, uh, I can double-check that. But <clears throat> while uh, we're waiting for Rob to join us, um, let me go ahead and let everybody who is joining us on YouTube um, know that you can come over to the Now You See TV Fellowship chat. We're going to be drawing questions um, and, and discussing different things about this tour portion. Um, so let me just go ahead and show you really quick how you can do that. Um, jump right over to nowyouctv.org. And at the top of the page, you can scroll down, and here you can see Virtual House Church. Now, whenever you click it and you scroll down, you can see um, where you can watch the episode live and also the fellowship chat. Now, in the fellowship chat, we're going to be drawing questions for Rob um, and anybody who wants to join the show later on tonight. I'm going to be posting a link here so that people can jump into the the Google Hangout, and you can ask questions live if that interests you. You know, we love to have a good community, especially for Virtual House Church. Um, it's, so it's very important for us to be able to talk with you guys and 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 get to know you. And we'd love to love to have you on if you'd want to join us. Uh, so uh, to uh, this past week, me and John have been working uh, a lot on our upcoming documentary, uh, which is going to be a a documentary on false immortality. It's exposing vampirism and it's just going to be so awesome i just got done uh chopping up a lot of the footage um that we got when we went to new orleans um and we interviewed a lady there who um was very heavily involved in the um like esoteric under you know underbelly of of new orleans and so one of the reasons we were drawn to that place is it's kind of considered the vampire capital of the world and so in order to really expose the mindset that that goes behind this false immortality and be able to really expose it, we had to have somebody from that side. Um, so uh, I'm just telling you this little story while we wait for Rob is um, we arrive in New Orleans and we meet up with Andy Pellerano. And for those of you who have not seen um, Andy, um, we posted a rap music video that we shot for him uh, the night we arrived after uh, we, we got our footage. And also he was up hanging out with us this past um, Tuesday and Wednesday. So we did an episode with him Tuesday night. He did a little bit of a, a instrumental uh, impromptu uh, performance at the end of the episode. It was awesome. So anyways, Andy's just this on-fire guy for God um, uh, there in New Orleans. Um, and they have this giant bus. And the bus has the words, Jesus is the plug, all written across the side. And on the front, it says Salvation Station. So this is definitely a loaded up vehicle. It's a vehicle that, um, you know, it, it, it's turning heads in the city of, you know, uh, the French Quarter and stuff that we're, he's been showing us around. So um, we, we load all our camera gear. We load everything we need to film for the documentary. Um, and it ends up that we pull up to this lady's house and she's like this vampire uh, uh, tour guide, basically. And uh, we pull up to her house in this giant Salvation Station wagon, and you should have seen her face um, when we got out of it. And she was just like, "Is this an evangelical attack?" You know, it was it was awesome. But uh, 
we are joined by Rob Skiba. And, and b before I finish off there, um, you guys should definitely um, check out Andy Pellerano's stuff that we've done early last week or early this week, actually. Um, yeah. Um, anyways, uh, we're joined by Rob Skiba. What's up, Rob? <laughs> hey, man, I just come in and hear you talking about like vampire chicks or something. So I don't know. What am I, yeah. what am I missing? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was telling him a little bit about um, the the film we got for uh, the the shots we got for the documentary we're working on on for false immortality, <laughs> and we had just a crazy experience in New Orleans whenever we went to interview the like the expert of vampires in the vampire capital of the U.S. So it was a, just an awesome experience, and, and I was telling him uh, to look forward for that documentary because we've been working on it all week, and um, I'm really excited for it. It's gonna be it's gonna be really cool. Crazy. Wow. <laughs> All right. Awesome. <laughs> well, sorry, I'm late. I was out and about and trying to get back home in time and uh, finally just got in. So um, let me go ahead and do a, a little screen share here and go ahead and get started. Um, here we go. Okay. You see the Virtual House Church website up there? Yes. Yeah. Okay, very good. Cool. All right, everybody, welcome to Virtual House Church. Um, I'm your host, Rob Skiba, and you already know Jake, so we'll just go ahead and jump in. I believe this week we are doing Deuteronomy week number 46, if I'm not mistaken. Let me just take a look at my notebook here, and I do believe that is true, yes. Okay, cool. So uh, if you just go to the Virtual House Church website, virtualhousechurch.com, that takes you to the uh, well, the homepage, and on, on the homepage, you'll see some resources there, uh, especially if you scroll down, you see this map right here. If you're looking for a uh, place to fellowship with people, one-on-one, -on -one, or, you know, many people to, to get together with and break bread and, you know, pray with each other and stuff like that, fellowship, uh, while each one of these blue dots represents somebody usually meeting together in somebody's home, and you just kind of zoom in, and you look at the United States, there are lots of blue dots. I mean, you just click on one, pops up. In this case, I got James Blankenship, it looks like. Blankenship. Uh, that's in Alabama. So if you guys uh, happen to live in that area there in, what's that, Tuscumbia, Alabama, uh, there's an email address. You can contact him. So you know, I just randomly clicked on one there, but uh, you can do that too. A lot of people are doing this, and it's real exciting uh, that – there's a resource like this. I got this from 119 Ministries, and uh, they, they've made this app available. So, yeah, check that out. In the meantime, uh, we're doing this in a virtual environment here on the Internet, and that's why I call it the Virtual House Church. If you're new, you should check out the um, Coming Out of Babylon link. That's a link that's basically for people who are brand new to this. Uh, you can listen to some old radio shows that I did on the, uh, Getting Back to Basics, Parts 1 and 2, and other resources here, books and videos, lots of stuff to check out here. Uh, if you're a newbie, that's a good place to start. Otherwise, uh, that we're doing what we call the weekly Torah portions, and that's where somebody a uh, long time ago, thousands of years ago, split the Torah up into weekly reading cycles so that you go through the entire Torah in a year. And then when the prophets came along, they started adding uh, sections from the prophets that went along with the Torah portion for that particular week. And then, of course, after the New Testament was written, uh, the New Testament was added as well. So literally every everybody who's doing Torah portions 
all around the world. We're all doing the same one at the same time, or not necessarily the same time <laughs> because 24 different time zones, but um, on the same day, essentially, uh, on Shabbat. Everybody's doing the study. And so this week's particular study, if you scroll down to uh, Deuteronomy week number 46, it's called Ekev. And that's Deuteronomy 7:12 through 11:25, and the prophets Isaiah 49:14 through 51:3, and these are the scripture references for the New Testament. If you just click on those, it takes you to Bible Gateway, and you can read along there. Um, I've already done two years of pretty ex extensive study that I, I put online. Again, I saw. I'm sorry, this plugin's not working. But if you go to the Revolutionary Radio Project on the Blog Talk Radio, you can listen to the archive from 2013. I took the archived audio from 2014 and put video to it. You can watch that study right there. And uh, then there's this uh, video right here. It's called Parsha in 60 Seconds. There's a ministry out there that goes by that name, Parsha in 60 Seconds. Parsha is just the Hebrew word for study. And so what they've done essentially is distill the Torah portion down to 60 seconds. And I like to play that sort of just sort of sets the stage for uh, the topic for this evening. So I'll go ahead and play that for us here and we'll get started. Which means if you follow, Moses tells the Israelites that if they obey God's rule, God would truly maintain the covenant. The Israelites were to destroy all the people whom God delivered to them, showing no pity and not worshiping their gods. They were to burn all idols and not keep anything. God recalls the lessons he taught the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. Miraculously, their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell for 40 years. God disciplined them as a man disciplines his son. Moses warns the Israelites that they were to dispose nations greater than they, but God would go before them as a devouring fire to drive out the land's inhabitants. God had not enabled them to possess the land because of their virtue, but God was disposing the land's current inhabitants because of their nation's wickedness and was fulfilling the oath that God had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses then reminded them about the incident with the golden calf and retells the story. Moses then reminds the Israelites of how they provoked God. Moses had to lay prostrate before God for 40 days because God was determined to destroy the Israelites. Moses recalls the two tablets and the Ark of the Covenant and the death of Aaron and the promotion of Eleazar. Moses describes God as supreme, great, mighty, and awesome, showing no favor and taking no bribe, but upholding the cause of the fatherless and the widow and befriending the stranger. Moses then says to Shema and instructs the binding of scripture on their hands and foreheads, which is known today as laying the villain. Also the posting of scripture on the door, which is known today as the mezuzah. And that is AK, I'm 67. Wow, a lot packed into that one. <laughs> so that's this week's tour portion. Uh, always recommend the links that are typically below that video on each page. It's the um, commentaries by a woman named Ardell from yourlivingwaters.com. Always uh, recommend checking those out. Very interesting, uh, in insightful writings there. And uh, looks like some deleted videos and didn't have a whole lot of commentary uh, that particular uh, on, at least not on the web page. I'm sure there's plenty to look at in the video. So if you haven't seen it, you might want to check out this study right here. And in the meantime, well, I'll turn it back over to you and we can just kind of open the floor up for discussion. Right on. Right on. Well, 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 uh, oh, we're getting a little bit of feedback there, bro. All right. You can kill that. Try it. How about now? Yeah. All right. That That's better. All right, so uh, just a reminder, guys, you know, while we're discussing, if you have any questions, please feel free to put them in the chat, um, and uh, and we'd love to get to them here in a moment. Um, so definitely in this Torah portion, there's a couple things that I wanted to, to bring on to the discussion table, things that I think are, are very interesting and stand out to me in the portion. Um, but uh, I think the first one I would want to kind of ask your opinion on and, and see if you had any insight on is the whole idea of laying prostrate. Um, so we see um, in this 
Torah portion that Moses has to lay prostrate uh, for 40 days. And then, you know, throughout the prophets, we see examples of laying prostrate um, through the kings whenever they're being repentant. And you see, of course, uh, or I think it was Ezekiel, Ezekiel. Laid, yeah, laid on his side prostrate. Um, so, you know, what is this concept of laying prostrate? Why is it a recurring theme in Scripture? And, and you know, wh- why does God seem to like it so much? Well, I mean, I would just be speculating on it, but I would say it's probably just an ultimate act of submission. Just, you know, um, whatever you want, God, you know. Um, uh, you know, that's what it that's what it would mean to me. It means basically an ultimate act of submission, just laying down on your face before a holy God and saying, okay, you know, I'm interceding, I'm praying, I want to hear from you, you know. And, and you know, it, it's it's a... It would be a humbling thing. It would be a, an act of discipline. I mean, I don't know that I could lay there that long. <laughs> you know, and in fact, well, I'm a stomach sleeper, so that might work out a little bit well for me because I sleep on my stomach anyway. So if I was just already prostrated, you know, laying out of my stomach, you know, I'd, yeah, I'd probably sleep okay that way. Uh, but like Ezekiel, I mean, he had to lay on his side for 390 days. You know, <laughs> Like, I couldn't do that, you know. So I mean that's a, that's a, a disciplined, extreme act of submission is basically what I would how I would view it. Yeah, I think just the whole process of both Moses laying on his laying down for forty days, and also Ezekiel, you know, they're doing this act for the people, and it's it's kind of the concept of of outward repent signs of repentance for your nation or for the people around you. And, and laying prostrate is like, you know, <laughs> I'm sure whenever they look at a prophet or somebody, you know, they're like, hey, you know, give, give, you know, help us out, stand up and, and, and walk. But, you know, <laughs> you're laying down, you're just completely, you know, they have to drag you around pretty much um, to get you to do what they want you to do. So if you want to make a stand, then lay down, you know, lay down <laughs> kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Especially kind of how he's, you know, he's making a stand for the sins of the people, and you know, and not actually standing while he does it. He's laying flat down. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. Um, uh, the mezuzah is another thing that comes out in this Torah portion that I wanted to get your take on. You know, the whole idea of of having the mezuzah on the doorway, um, on the door frame, and and what you know, what significance do we have? You know, with you know, writing the words of Yahweh on our door frames mm-hmm. uh, and on the posts, you know, what, you know, that that's su- such a deep, awesome rabbit trail um, that I know I only really started to see the value of, you know, the, in the past few years as I've been mm-hmm. setting out the core portion. So, you know, what, what, what do you have on the mezuzah? Yeah. Um, well, since I've been, I moved to Texas in 2003 and the whole time I've been here, I've lived in rental properties, you know. So, I, I, you know, I can't really just do whatever I want, you know, to the dwelling place that I'm living in, right? Um, but I know people who have houses that they own and whatnot, that they have stuff like that, you know, the, the mezuzah, you know, I think it's been become sort of a commercialized way of doing this, you know, roll up a scroll, put it in a fancy little box kind of thing and screw it into the doorframe of your house. Um, I, I don't know that it specifically tells us to do it that way. It's a convenient way of doing it. 
Um, but I also know people who have written out the words that usually are traditionally put on the door. They've actually, you know, in, you know, calligraphy or some other kind of nice handwriting or whatever, have written them out across the door frame. you know? And, and I think that's really cool because, you know, you see it when you go into your house, you see it when you come out of your house. And so to me, it's, it, it functions in the same way way or has perhaps the same t sort of function that the seat seat have, you know, I mean, the seat seat are, we wear them because it's supposed to tell us to remind us, you know, every time we look down, okay, I, I should be keeping the commandments, you know, every time, you know, you put your clothes on, uh, I should be keeping the commandments. Well, every time you leave your home and go into your home, it's the same thing. R reminder of who, you belong to and what and how you should act both at home as well as out, you know, outside. So, and, and if you look at that whole passage, I was just kind of looking through uh, my notes in my, my notebook here, um, that the, um, the mark, basically like the mark of the, of God, um, it's, it's, it's in Deuteronomy 11, Verse 18, therefore shall you lay up these words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be frontlets between your eyes. So you have a, a mark, if you will, or a sign, if you will, on your right hand and between your eyes. And while some take that to be very physical, literal, and they'll actually put a box between their eyes or you know have something wrapped around their hand, uh, you know, as a physical, tangible, literal interpretation of that. Uh, but I think there's an extended meaning to that is that, you know, what your hand goes to do and what you think about and what you see and all of that, you know, these are, again, um, words of remembrance to call us back to being obedient to him. And that's one of the reasons why I've, I've come to, I think it was one of the previous shows we did, we were talking about what is the mark of the beast. And in my thoughts on the mark of the beast have been evolving over the years recently. And it seems to me, yes, there may be a physical, tangible, literal mark of some sort that is either on the forehead or hands or internally in your body um, or, and, or let's say it could be a counterfeit to this, you know, and, Going strictly biblical and letting the Bible interpret itself, it's making more sense to me that it, it's it's the the antithesis of this is where you know you've got a choice. You could walk in the ways of Yahuwah, doing his feasts and his rules and doing things his way, or you could do the antithesis of that and and go the way of the world or the way of the god of this world and who ultimately i think is you know satan slash nimrod you know nimrod being his um his his playing piece on the chessboard if you will that a lot of the counterfeit what i now call beast feasts are associated with so in uh and i've joked about it before i think even here last week or recent somewhere recently um that when I first was driving to Texas from Massachusetts, I saw the biggest billboard I've ever seen in my life. And it said, Saturday is a true Sabbath, Sundays of the devil. And it was like, you know, this huge billboard. I'm like, whoa. Um, and, but now I'm, I'm looking at that and I'm saying, well, you know, the Sabbath is 
I, there's a big argument. There's a big debate. There's the lunar Sabbatarians. I get, I get your argument. Okay, I understand. I'm not on your page, not yet, anyway. Uh, but I understand the argument. I've, I've read the arguments. I get it. Uh, but for now, I'm in the camp that subscribes to the notion that Saturday is the Sabbath. And, and actually, what came up in last week's discussion in our, our physical house church, uh, was that the Muslims worship on Friday. Uh, Christians and, uh, or I would say Jews and Messianic Christians and, you know, Torah folk do it on Saturday and standard Christianity does it on Sunday, you know. So it's sort of like you've, you've got three to choose from. And when you, you look at Friday and Sunday in particular, it doesn't fit the biblical narrative, whereas Saturday does. And, um, you know, some people, well, how do we know it's still Saturday? Saturday's always been Saturday. Well, I mean, at least in my research, I've looked back as far as I could find records of anything. Um, and in multiple cultures, it appears that this, we now what we now call Saturday has always been the seventh day of the week. You know, the, 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 the word Saturday is a late comer into the language of humanity. Um, you know, Saturn's day, if you want to say it that way, that came way later. It was known as the seventh day. But when you look at multiple cultures and in, in, in multiple languages, even to this day, the, the word they use for Saturday is a derivative of either the Greek Sabaton or the Hebrew Shabbat. In fact, I asked my friend, uh, Peter, who grew up in Greece, I said, you know, if, if I said uh, Sabaton, what did you just hear? He goes, well, that'd be like Saturday, <laughs> you know. Um, so to me, uh, that's pretty strong evidence that the seventh day has always been the seventh day and multiple cultures and multiple languages use a word for the day we call, you and I call Saturday, that is derived either from the Greek Sabbaton or the Hebrew Shabbat. So then that would say to me, if you think that Sunday has replaced Sabbath, and that's sort of the new Sabbath, then, then it's a different mark, because all through the Torah, we have our Father saying, "Look, this is a the seventh day Sabbath is the mark between," and it, it's extended when it talks about the feasts and other things. And He's like, "Look, put this, let this be a sign on your hand and on your in, in between your eyes, your forehead, if you will, that that it's that you are mine." You know, like like this. This is in 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 our culture. This is signifies, okay, I'm married. You know. This is a an outward sign that I'm taken, you know, uh, and committed to somebody else. Well, I mean, God set aside certain rules that would serve the function of saying, "Hey, this is these are mine," you know. It, if you want to think of it like a wedding band or something like that, it's an expression that that commits us to Him, and and shows that we are His. And so if you're going to reject all that and go with the beast feasts and you know, all these other things, then you're effectively putting your hand to those things and you're setting your mind on those things. And to me, that is another form of a mark of the beast. So, you know, I just think that we, and last week, we didn't even talk about this last week. Um, but if we go back to last week's Torah portion, we ended up talking about this at some length in our regular house church, where it talks about in, um, what is this, Deuteronomy chapter 4. And it specifically says, don't make a likeness of things on earth or the likeness of birds or, or fish. And yet, what does Christianity have for symbols? Well, we got a 
fish, a bird, and a tree cross. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, and it specifically tells you, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> you know, um, you know, that's one of the reasons we we purged our house a while ago uh, of such symbols. But I mean, like he's laid it all out for us. It's all right here. Yeah. You know, um, one of one of the things that I, I want to kind of touch on that you mentioned was, you know, the whole idea of the mark of the beast. And you know, one of the biggest questions that I have about the mark itself is almost is it's really the finality of it, um, and it seems to imply that whoever does take the mark of the beast, it's over for them. You know, that they, they can't they can't re you know you know <clears throat> untake it. And so yeah. I've really wondered about that aspect of it because um, I thought the parallel you drew between the uh, mezuzah and zitzitz was very interesting because it's you know it's a sign it's a symbol it's an outward thing that reminds of reminds us of an inward process we we have something that we're physically doing like we have the zitzitz and we look down and we remember oh the commandments are something I need to be paying attention to I need to remember Yahweh everywhere I go and it's it's something one that sets you apart and two reminds you um, that you need to be walking according to the father's ways and so um, you know whenever you look at the mezuzah it's also an outward you know thing that you know is reflecting an inward an inward pull that you have to obey the scriptures so you know I, I think that the parallel that you were making with you know is keeping the the you know sabbath and or sunday mark of the beast you know a possible thing like the 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 actions behind um doing different various things so you know, I, I think it's just a, a very interesting, you know, parallel that, you know, in the scriptures, we've we've kind of lost the concept that it's through physically walking something out that, you know, God is going to reveal a spiritual principle to us. And and we've super spiritualized a lot of this stuff. I mean, um, what you were talking about Sunday and Saturday, well, um, if the Sabbath was changed anywhere in scripture, you know, I want to see that verse. And yep, um, it doesn't exist. <laughs> There, you know, there's an awesome resource that people can use. Um, that it's a, a online resource. It's called the Blue Letter Bible. All right, and so if you get on Blue Letter Bible, you can type in the word first day or uh, the first day of the week or you know whatever any way you want to phrase it. And what you're going to find is this: you're going to find about eight times in the New Testament is the word first day of the week used. Um, and of course, this is always what these eight verses have to be what justifies Sunday being the new Sabbath or a change taking place out of these eight verses where it mentions first day of the week. We don't see that though. You know, the majority of them, I believe five or six out of the eight are all referring to the first day of the week um, that Yeshua raised out of the grave, um, which was the, the, the feast of first fruits, by the way. Um, and, and then the rest of them were, you know, different times that he met with them. But nowhere is it a command that the Sabbath is now on the first day and that some new thing has been 
to been created. However, on the flip side, you know, you have the Sabbath day. And if you search that in Blue Letter Bible, you're going to find that over 56 times in the New Testament did the apostles and um, the, the, the first century believers were meeting on the Sabbath day. They were going into the synagogues. They were learning the Torah. They were learning Moses. They were preaching. They were doing, you know, they were doing a ton of stuff on the Sabbath day. They were going into the synagogues to preach on the Sabbath day. Um, and and there's just so much evidence that the Sabbath day was still something that the believers were keeping. It, it, they didn't just throw it to the wayside. And and it's something that throughout Scripture we see the Sabbath day is also considered a sign, just like how the mezuzah, how the tzitzits, um, you know, they are a sign to that that sets us apart, the, a sign that makes us a unique people. And in the same way, the Sabbath is something that sets his people apart. It's a, it's a, it's a sign between uh, Yahweh and his people. So, you know, just this, this Torah portion seems to have signs written all over it, you know, physical signs that either remind us of a spiritual principle or, or something that we need to walk out because, you know, it keeps us mindful of the Father. Yeah. Uh, well, you brought up an interesting point uh, in uh, regarding the first day of the week issue. And uh, if people want to check this out, they can go to my website, robschannel.com. And when you go to robschannel.com, look in the main menu, you see a, uh, you'll see a link that says Facebook Notes. Scroll down to where it says Ephraim Awakening. That takes you to this page right here. And if you scroll down the Ephraim Awakening page to uh, where it says Commandments, Sabbaths, and the Feast, you got a link right here, first day of the week or first the Sabbaths. And if you click on that, it takes you to my Facebook note on it. And uh, first thing you'll notice is the word day in your Bible. If you've got like a King James, King James is good about showing words that were inserted into the text that, that don't exist when the translators took liberty to insert words there. Sometimes it, it's needed for grammatical reasons, but other times I contend that some of these italicized words were put in because of personal bias. Um, and, and I contend this is one of those cases. The, the word day does not exist in the original text. And so you have the word first, and then you have the word that's translated into week. Well, if you actually look up the Greek word for week, it's something like uh, heptoma or something like that. Um, but if you look on like blueletterbible.com or, uh, or org or whatever it is, or if you look at, um, I use uh, Bible Hub sometimes, for the same thing, uh, Bible Hub or, or Bible.cc. Uh, and if you use the tool, you'll see that the word used there that's translated into week is the word sabaton. Well, the sabaton I just mentioned earlier is the word for Sabbath. I mean, everywhere you see the word Sabbath in the New Testament, it's coming from the word sabaton. And so what you have there in the Greek is miaton sabaton is what is translated into first day of the week. Well, Day is not in anywhere in that Greek phrase. And I just mentioned the word for week is not uh, sabaton, it's uh, heptoma. So really, I, so I call, I was like really confused. I called my friend Peter. I said, okay, and I love calling him because he, he doesn't have any dog in this hunt. You know, he's just out there doing his thing. And, you know, he, Greek, he speaks Greek fluently. So I can throw words and phrases at him and he has no idea what the the argument is or the debate or anything he just he's just answering the question so i'll say hey peter if i say to you miaton sabiton what did you just hear and he said 
one time on Saturday. <laughs> uh, so, um, and that's what he said to me, you know, once, one time on Saturday was his response for Miaton Sabaton, which is everywhere translated as first day of the week. Now, I have heard it, a counter argument to that is that it, no Mia and the way it's the way it's written it can it means like first first of the Sabbaths. And so they take creative liberty knowing that Sabbath is the seventh day to say first of the Sabbath really means first day of the week. No, it could also mean and I think I make a pretty good case for this in, in this this uh, blog is that it means first of the Sabbaths. And if you look at the many times that it's that that phrase is used, it's usually used in reference in terms of time at a point between Passover and Pentecost. Well, it's in that time period that's the only time period where you actually count Sabbaths. You're, you're counting Sabbaths to Pentecost. So first of the Sabbaths, you know, especially in the context of when the discussion is taking place. And I, I, you know, you could go through this whole thing and, and read through it. But, I mean, I take you through the verses, each one and how it's used and, you know, what people are doing before and after that. And um, I, I said, uh, let's see. Um, uh, well, I'll just go ahead and read it here. Um, the same is true for Acts twenty. Verse seven. Let's back up to verse six, though, for context. I, I this is one of the proof texts people use for first first day of the week. Exodus, uh, excuse me, Acts twenty, beginning verse six. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. And upon the first day of the week, this is Miaton Sabaton, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech unto until midnight. Here we see that they continued, they, they concluded the Feast of Unleavened Bread and is less than a week, and in less than a week, they arrived in Troas, apparently in time to celebrate the Feast of the Seven Sabbaths that are counted leading to Pentecost. Again, the Jubilee Bible blows the King James Version out of the water with a far more accurate rendition of the Greek, where it says, Acts 20, beginning of verse 6, same, same passage, and we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. Okay, this is, you know, Passover time frame between Passover and uh, Pentecost. And came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. And the first of the Sabbaths, Miaton Sabbaton, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart the next day, and continued his word until midnight. And if we need more proof that this is true, we see in verse 16 of Acts 20, For Paul had determined to sail to Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia, for he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. And I say, to me, this is absolute proof that the first of the Sabbaths of Acts 20, verse 7, is a reference to the first of the seven which are counted leading up to Pentecost, which Paul earnestly desired to keep, which shows a couple of things. You know, Paul's always preaching on the Sabbath, and he's always keeping the feast. You know, he's like, man, if it, it, it all possible, i got to get back for the feast. And so you, you have a a part right here that clearly that the I believe Luke is writing this is telling you exactly the time frame that we should be thinking about and it's in the time frame which is the only time when you count sabbaths so meaton sabaton meaning the first of the sabbaths 
makes absolute perfect sense in the context of what's being said right here. And again, the word day doesn't exist in the text, and the word for week is not sabaton. So, you know, even the argument everybody uses for, you know, first day of the week, if you really break it down, as I've done here, it, it doesn't hold water. Yeah, I think that's so interesting that uh, that the, a lot of the translators translated as first day of the week when it could definitely be taken in the context of what they were doing, what they were waiting for. You know, they, the one thing that Yeshua tells them, you know, when he ascends, it's like, Terry, uh, you know, hang out, and they're waiting for the feasts. Um, they're waiting for Pentecost to come about. Um, and, and so it makes sense that they were counting the Sabbaths until – the morrow after the Sabbath. It's literally a command in the Torah to count the the counting of the Omer. You know, you're you're commanded to keep track of those days so that you can keep the the feast on the appointed time. So you know what you know what is the the importance of feasts? I know a lot of people ask me, you know, you know why why feast? Why is you know why does it seem that you know Christians have at large lost an understanding of the significance of the feasts. Well, you know, Satan's a, a, a liar and he's come to steal, kill and destroy. Right. And, you know, I think the things that he targets the most are the things that offer us the biggest blessings, some of the most identity. Um, you know, whenever you practice and keep feasts, you are getting on God's time clock. Literally, you know, you're, you're trying to pay attention to his appointed times and also going through the cycles reveals deeper things about scripture. It reveals deeper aspects about who the Messiah is and the plan of redemption. And that's why he wants us to remember them. It's not to be legalistic. You know, you know, I've heard some of the, the most violent, you know, rejections of keeping the feast is because, you know, that, that seems so like so much like bondage, you know, and, and that doesn't make so much sense to me because it's so awesome to get together with people and, and, you know, if everybody's there with a heart that's like, wow, I want to just learn more about the Father, you know, I want to dig deeper, and they're there to celebrate a feast, sometimes that's the best environment to be around believers who are there with a heart that's 100 percenters, you know, they're there because they're all in, and and they just want to, you know, they've gained the identity of Israel, that's what the book's about, is we're regaining our identity as Israel, and whenever we participate in the feasts, whenever we, you know, put a sign on our door frames, whenever we wear the tassels, you know, that is us grabbing hold of our identity as Israel. And that's so exciting that the Messiah has allowed us to be able to do that, to be able to say, all right, you know, that is who I am now. I am I am one of God's people and to be set apart and to be God's people, you know, you, you do the things that he, he gave us. So it, I think, you know, talking about feasts and, and Sabbath are just so important. And uh, especially with this tour portion, talking about signs and, and, and re- being reminded of your identity as Israel, constantly having something on your doorway to remind you or, um, you know, the, the tassels or the, the tefillim. Um, I do want to have you you know, talk a little bit more about tefillim um, and the you know kind of what the Jews do today. Um, do you have kind of any understanding of why they have been led to actually do the the wrapping of the leather and 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 binding the the boxes? Um, is there any reason that they decided to interpret the command and apply it that particular way? Oh yeah, well I think I mean they're being literalists. I think I mean if you look at it. The, in the way it's written, I mean, it does. 
I could see you, I could see good reason why somebody could take it literally in that sense and just say, okay, I'm going to bind this to my hand and to my head, you know? Um, now, is it really being, I mean, I think that's open to your interpretation. I mean, I can understand how it could be taken literally and I can understand how it could be taken figuratively. You know, I'm, I can see, honestly, see both sides, but I, I like the way you just articulated it about embracing our identity. And let me just be clear to anybody out there who may be thinking this, we are not talking about replacement theology. Quite the opposite, actually. Um, you know, and I maintain that the, usually the people who are pointing the finger saying, ah, that's replacement theology. They're actually the ones that are believing in replacement theology because they believe for thousands of years, the whole plan of God was all about Israel. Israel, 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 Israel. Then cross, boom, church. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's like in their theology, they have put, it, you know, and according to them, they've God has basically put Israel aside, and he's playing around with this thing called the church now for two thousand years. Then you know, usually in that same theology, God's going to take the church out and then beat the snot out of his pre previous wife until they, she loves him again. You know, uh, you know, we're going to escape the tribulation, and the tribulation is really for the Jews, so the Jews will come back to God. You know, that's that's in a nutshell the way they believe. So I'm like, no, 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 no. you believe in replacement theology. I believe in grafting, according to Romans chapter 7 through 11, with the focus on chapter 11 specifically, where it comes right out and tells you, look, you, you got two trees. You got a cultivate olive tree, which is ethnic Israel, the 12 tribes that descended from Jacob, Isaac, you know, Isaac and Abraham. You know, if you're in that tree and you, you reject the Messiah, then your branch is cut off. If you're over here in this crazy wild tree over here that has no blood relation to this tree, but you believe in Yeshua, then you get grafted into that tree. You know, uh, I mean, so it's, you're, you're either of one or the other or getting grafted or taken out of one or the other. You know, I, and I would say that if you don't believe in Yeshua and you're of this tree, you are grafting yourself into the wild tree. You're saying, I don't want to be in this tree anymore. I'm going to go with the crazy pagans. And if you're a crazy pagan, you say, you know, I, I believe in this Jewish Messiah. I'll, I'm out of that tree and putting it this one. You know, that's grafting. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so easy. It's so simple. And another way I could relate it is, you know, I've said this before, but, you know, I, I really truly believe that, that Yahuwah picked my wife. And when he picked my wife, he knew that she had a son and that I would give him my name, you know. It's effectively adopting him into the Skiba tree, if you will, grafting him into my tree. He is of a different tree genetically from me, but he has taken on my family identity. And so after we got married, he started wearing baseball. He played baseball in, in school and whatnot. Uh, his baseball jersey, jersey had my name identity across his back. You know, so and I mean, it's a beautiful illustration of how, you know, somebody who is not a people becomes a people. And biblically speaking, you who are not a people shall be a people, you know, meaning Israel. Uh, you know, you who are not a skiba shall be a skiba. I could take the same analogy and migrate it over into my marriage to Sheila and adoption of Jeremiah. So, you know, to, to my family has traditions. We have things that we do that were different from the, his ancestry. And, and so it's like, look, you know, you could wear my name, 
you're you're going to be heir to whatever I have to leave when I you know if you know the Lord tarries and I grow old and die then you know whatever my what is mine you inherit you know so you are heir to you know whatever I have to leave you you can participate in my family's traditions to whatever degree you want to so you know and if he chooses to do so then he is embracing his new identity he said okay I'm a skiba you know and what you were saying earlier is exactly what you know I'm like why why is it considered bondage bondage to decide you want to throw off Christmas and Easter and do Passover and tabernacles and stuff instead you know uh, I mean, I never thought of Christmas and Easter as bondage. I mean, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, geez, I don't really have the money to buy Christmas presents this year. But, you know, it was never a, a thought of, oh, the bondage, oh, the legalism of Christmas and Easter. <laughs> I can't take it. You legalists. We never thought that way. So why do people all of a sudden think that way when we throw off the beast feast and decide to do what God actually said to do? That he said, hey, look, I created holidays, holy days that I want to celebrate with you and, and it, people are, oh, it's legalism. And part of it is we have been like mind controlled into thinking, well, this is the feast of the Jews. I, I mean, I would have said that too, eight years ago, oh, it's the feast of the Jews. But if you actually go back and look at Leviticus 23 uh, uh, and yod heh vav -Hey spake unto Moses saying, speak unto the children of Israel and saying to them concerning the feast of yod heh vav -Hey, not the Jews, yod heh vav -Hey, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Even these are my feasts, not the feasts of the Jews. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, and holy convocation ye shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of yod heh vav -Hey in all your dwellings. These are the feasts of yod heh vav -Hey, not the Jews. I mean, you could go through the whole Bible and see that they're his feasts. They're not the feasts of the Jews. So, I mean, a big part of our problem is is mind control, you know, um, and, and people just parroting, you know, they hear something and they're taught something at a, at a seminary or whatever, and then they just parrot it at, you know, in the pulpit. And then the laity listens to the dude in the pulpit and, you know, give him some measure of authority that he's a smart guy. So we just believe whatever he says. And then we go around saying the same thing. Well, that's a piece of Jews. Don't get me into bondage. It's like, <laughs> what? You know, it, it doesn't make sense when you actually take the time to look into it for yourself. Yeah. You know, um, I was talking with Lex Meyer, he was describing to me the process of going to seminary, going to Bible college, and um, the way he described his kind of journey through Bible college was he went into, into school and, and, and he noticed that everybody kind of had really flimsy uh, kind of just Sunday morning theology, and whenever they got to college, the professors would just fillet people, <laughs> and after they would fillet them, they would then give them their own, you know, this is basically the word of God interpretation. And, and, and that's why people would buy into it because first, you know, the, these professors, they see all the contradictions that, you know, they, they see a lot of these contradictions that they fillet people's theology, you know, depending on whatever denomination they're coming from. And then they present them with a just as slightly skewed theology, you know, uh -huh. And, you know, I, I think the whole concept of identity uh -huh. is so important.
for believers. You know, in, in today's day and age, we are in a a time that people are searching for identity. It's so obvious. You know, you have the 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 gender you know pronoun identity search that is just you know, seems to be catching fire. You know, you have people looking for identity in all different types of places. Um, you know, my generation, the, you know, the millennial generation, they're one of the, the most lacking generations in the church. And it's because they definitely don't see an identity in just going and keeping Sunday country club church. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not something there for them. You know, it's, and, and I think that's so disheartening because I remember growing up, you know, the whole concept of finding an identity was so awesome to me. I always thought it would be awesome to be like a, you know, somebody who had like Italian lineage because, you know, they're part of the family, you know, <laughs> being on the inside, be, having a cultural identity, um, you know, and it's it's something that the Messiah completely offers us. And, and I think that's so tragic that, you know, that so many people preach against the feasts, against, you know, against, you know, Wearing seat seats, you know that that's part of something that sets you apart and says, "Look, you know, I'm the Father's. I'm a son of the Father. I'm I'm walking like the Messiah," and that's like an identity that I know that I was hungry for all growing up, even in the church, because you know you don't truly get an identity whenever you're just going on Sunday and Wednesday night. You know, it's whenever you make your life your faith that it becomes your identity and you start to walk out and you bear that cross. You know, you, you live and walk as the Messiah because your faith is not just something that's part of your life, which is often, you know, what we see, you know, people need to get on fire and, and really make their faith, their life. And that's when it becomes your identity because, you know, whenever you're like, you know, I'm keeping the feast this year, I'm so excited. You know, I'm going to be meeting up with my brothers and sisters that are all keeping the feasts. And, and, you know, whenever you're getting together, you're doing the tour portions like we do each week with the virtual house church and our own fellowships, you know, that's, that's an identity. That's actually, you know, saying, you know, I I'm set apart. I'm, I'm, I want to be Israel. And, you know, that's something that, that it's important. You know, we want to be Israel. That's the, the people that he saves. You know, it's Israel that throughout the Bible, we see that he's stepping in and, and he's great and he's saving and he's, he's rescuing. And, you know, I, I want to be called Israel. I want to be called by that name. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's kind of partially what this, this portion is really bringing out is just the idea of, you know, are you, you know, willing to identify as Israel? Are you willing to put something on your door that your neighbors might see that identify you as Israel? Are you willing to wear something um, that would identify you as Israel? And more, most importantly, you know, what we covered with the tefillim, are you willing to let your actions, what you do with your hand, willing to make your actions demonstrate that you're part of Israel mm-hmm. and much as your thought process? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we have a couple questions that are coming in. That's pretty much all I had to kind of discuss tonight on the portion, I guess. All right. Yeah. And so we have a question coming in from X Panzer, and they ask, how do you honor this commandment in your lives? And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. So I guess along the lines well, that's of what we've been talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, how do they apply the commandment of the Tefillim? Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's what we've been, that's what we have been talking about here. 
Um, what, what is that verse specifically? I'm trying to find it. Um, oh, that's that's what I read made before. Verse 18 of uh, what is it? Chapter 11. Therefore, you shall lay up these words in your heart and in your soul, and bind them for a sign upon your hand, that they may be as frontless between your eyes. I mean, the whole language right there. I mean, the entire verse seems to me, and I could be wrong. I think, you know, like I said, I can see justification for a literal, let's go ahead and tie something to our hand. But if you're going to do that, well, how are you going to do the rest literal? You know what I mean? Lay up these words in your heart and in your soul. Okay, how do you do that? Literally. You know, like physically, how do you do that? Now, if I take it as an idiom and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to take these words to heart and I'm going to apply these words to my actions and to my thoughts, then to me, the, the thought process is cohesive through the whole verse that we're talking, we're using figures of speech, if you will. Um, but there are people who say, well, okay, yeah, I'm going to lay these words up in my heart and in my soul uh, as a figure of speech, but then I'm going to t physically take something and wrap it around my hand or stamp something between my eyes. You know what I mean? I mean, I, okay. If that's the way you're led to interpret that, great. You know? And, and, and Orthodox rabbinic Jews do that. You know, they got a box between their 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 eyes on their forehead, and they got stuff wrapped around their their hands. You know, okay, well, that's how you've chosen to try to walk that out in a physical sense. I get it. Great. You know, and I wouldn't say anything bad against anybody who would decide to do that. To me, when I look at this, the whole thing appears to be a, a set of figures of speech. Take it to heart, apply it to action, and think about it. You know, that's the way I take it. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying that's the way I, I'm reading this. Because I don't, I don't see sign of Yeshua walking around with that. You know, I, I don't see any evidence in the New Testament that Yeshua or any of the apostles yeah, had, um, a, had, a, had a box between their eyes. Am I breaking had, up? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. I can hear you. All right, uh, you're freezing up on my end. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, I was just saying, I don't see anything in the New Testament that would lead me to believe that Yeshua walked around with a box between his eyes or anything specifically wrapped around his right hand. You know, and so, you know, if Yeshua didn't do it, then, it, but I do see evidence that he had tzitzit. So, you know, he, he clearly saw where something is literal and tangible and has a physical expression, i.e. the seat seat hanging from the four corners of his, his vesture. Okay, so he did that. But show me where Yeshua or any of the apostles or anybody else in the New Testament was walking around with a box between their eyes and something wrapped around their hand. You know, to me, it seems that they had the same view of the scripture that I just described, that it's, uh, you know, a figure of speech. Yeah, I mean, it's important, you know, living it out, you know, I think it's it's the whole idea of the mindset that the culture had is, you know, whenever you are, are told something, you know, it was 
so so first of all, it's the Greek mindset, which is you think, therefore you are, versus the Semitic Middle Eastern mindset, which is you know if you did something, if you did the action, that would define who you were. Not so much the Greek mentality of just forms and and it's all ethereal and I think, therefore I am. So you know it, it's a parallel with how the culture of the time, you know how they they had a mindset of doing, and, and it was the action that demonstrated. You know your your allegiance. Not if you thought in your head, "Oh, I love Jesus." It was your your walking out your life, saying, "You know, I'm I'm going to serve the the Father. I'm going to serve and and walk as the Messiah." Um, our next question coming in comes from Tal Thompson, and it says, "I was recently debating someone about the issue of eating unclean foods, and they pointed something out to me in Mark seven. We all know this." back and I'm pretty sure most of us know that it's the go-to place for Protestants and Catholics to go for pro-pork arguments. But the person I was debating pointed out that in Mark 7, Jesus says that nothing that goes into a man can defile him, but he pointed out the nothing in that verse. Does that mean that eating unclean foods can make us unclean? Okay, this one comes up a lot. Let me do a screen share here. Sorry, I can't make us – does that mean eating unclean foods can't make us unclean? Sorry, I read that wrong. Well, um, you know, this has come up a few times. So if people want to go to Leviticus week number 26, Shemini, um, and scroll down to um, – uh, yeah, this is it right here. So did you show it? Okay, um, so did Yeshua declare all foods, meats, such as swine, clean, thus making something good that Yahuwah says is detestable? Some English translations of the Bible would have us believe he did. Mark 7.19 is often cited. And you can look at different ones, uh, different verses. And depending on how you know it's rendered, like in the NIV butchers it, in parentheses, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Well, there's, I mean, even if you went with that argument, even if you're using that translation, you would say declared all foods clean. Well, no Jew would have even ever remotely considered pork to be food. You know, if I said to you, uh, all the food in my refrigerator is clean, go for it, eat it. Would you eat the plastic that the ketchup was contained in? You know, you could eat anything in my refrigerator. It's all good for you, you know. Well, I mean, you're going to start eating the, the glass and the plastic and, you know, <laughs> no, there are things in the refrigerator that you just know are not food. So you're not even going to think of it that way. But that's not what this verse is saying anyway. I mean, you've got several of these that said, thus saying this, you know, he declared all foods clean, blah, 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 blah. But when you go like King James and several other translations, where I have it in red, they got it right. Because it entereth into his heart, but into entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, he goeth out into the drought, purging all meats. King James got this right. Um, International Standard Version, because it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then into the sewer, thereby expelling all foods. That's a really good translation right there to help you understand what's going on. American or Aramaic Bible in plain English, because it does not enter his heart, but his belly and is discharged by excretion, which purifies all foods. What it's basically saying is, you know, there's things that go into your heart and there's things that go into your stomach. The stuff that goes in your stomach gets crapped out. 
<laughs> that's what it's saying. I'm being I'm being a little more crude here, but that's what it's saying. It has there's nothing here that says. And by saying this, he declared all foods clean. You know, so I mean, you could go through this uh, Leviticus week number twenty six and read more on it. But there's there's quite a bit more here. I'm not going to take the time to do it here because we've already done a whole study on it. But uh, oh, and this is also a really good video I would point people to regarding the issue of clean and unclean foods. Um, and it's on the bottom of this page right here. So uh, Professor Walter Weith, as a scientist and a Christian, uh, he looks at it, okay, this is what the Bible says, but as a scientist, why did God say that these particular animals are unclean? What is it about this animal's uh, biology that makes it not good for us? So he tells you from a scientific point of view why that stuff's not good for you and why Yahuwah said, hey, listen, stay away from that. You know, so, you know, people who have got questions on that mark issue and, and the issue of, of unclean foods in general, I would point them to uh, Virtual House Church week number 26. All right. And our next question coming in is from Chanel. And she asks, if we were to go to church on Sunday, would that be against God? I listen to you every Saturday, but go on Sundays as well. Yeah, I don't have a... And I've said this a number of times before, and I'll say it again here. I think we should worship God every day, <laughs> Sunday through Saturday, seven days a week. I think we should worship God. I don't think there's anything wrong with worshiping God on any day or every day of the week. The issue is if you think that Sunday has replaced Sabbath, and if you're doing whatever you want to do on Sabbath, and then you're taking your day of rest on Sunday, that's when you have an issue. You know, whether verbally or through your actions, you know, whether in your thoughts or in your actions, forehead, hand, your actions are telling us whether or not you consider it a day of rest. Now, in, in, in our culture, except for in, you know, recent decades, it used to be nobody worked on Sunday. Like Sunday, you know, you work your job, but you had Sunday off. You know, now people didn't typically get Saturday off. They got Sunday off because it was considered a day of rest, which says to me, if you're considering it a day of rest, that you have made Sunday a Sabbath and replaced Saturday because you're doing you know, your normal stuff on Saturday that you're not doing on Sunday. So that's the only thing that I was, I mean, I think, look, if you take Saturday or your Sabbath to rest, to honor the commandment and spend time in fellowship with your brothers and sisters and studying Torah, whatever you want to do, that's not your normal activity of work, keeping the Sabbath, and you go to church on Sunday, okay, that's great. That's wonderful. That's awesome. You know, and I know people who do that. And they, you know, they, they came out of Sunday, understood Sabbath, started to keep the Sabbath, but still like the fellowship with their friends and family that go to church on Sunday and they want to continue to do that fellowship. Uh, that's great. That I don't see anything wrong with that. And I'll go on record and saying that, you know, cause some people are like, Oh, you're saying, you know, if you're on Sunday, you do Sunday, you're going to hell. I never said that. <laughs> Just don't make Sunday your Sabbath because it's not, you know, uh, that, that would be my only issue on, on that. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, for quite some time, went to a, a Sunday church. Um, you know, I think the most important thing, uh, you know, I, I was going to a Sunday church while also keeping Shabbat and fellowshipping with people on feasts and stuff, is the most important thing is whenever you go to 
the Sunday keeping church, you got to understand that a lot of people there, they're not going to be receptive if you're, you know, shoving down Sabbath and feast down their throat, you know, in their Sunday keeping church. You know, oftentimes people have learned time and time again that they aren't very welcome after a long time if they're being a Torah terrorist, you know. And so the process of going there, understanding that they don't have it revealed to them, the Father's not revealed to them, keeping Sabbath, eating kosher, you know, the, the things that I know are probably very exciting and you want to share with them, you know, but it's totally possible to fellowship and and ease people into it. But it's so important to make sure you're walking it out and you're actually just, you know, you're living it. And that's what hooks people. That's, they say, Hey, you know, why do you, you know, not, why do you not want to go out to eat with us on Saturdays? Or, you know, why are you keeping these feasts? That's what hooks people. And it brings them in to ask more questions. Um, And that's what I've found. that where they're not fully on board is you know whenever you just are living it around them they they're curious you do run the risk of having to be forced to play church and we don't want to do that we, you know we're trying to get away from traditional religion we're trying to get away from the corporate church that is you know in a, in a lot of ways i think you know you know, it, it, you, you got to be careful get being drawn into that system. Um, but at the same time, it's totally a possible thing to fellowship. I've, I've done it, and I, I know a lot of people who, who do. Um, they look at it as a, as a way of ministry. They want to share the truths that God's revealed to them, uh, to the people in the Sunday church. And a lot of us have family and friends who are not fully on board yet. So, you know, the only way to really get around them and, and be able to talk scripture is go to Sunday church with them. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, and that's, a, that's, a t- I mean, I, I get the heart. I understand that and the desire, you know, that you expressed, I, uh, but you gotta be real careful with that. I mean, it's sort of like being a Baptist going to the Catholic church, trying to just, you know, pull everybody out of Catholicism into becoming a Baptist or, you know, Jehovah witnesses coming over to the Baptist church and trying to convert everybody, you know, uh, I mean, there, there's a fine line there. And other people will pick up on it. Look, if you're just coming here to tell us that we're wrong and that you're right, you know, get out. <laughs> you know, uh, which is sort of the policy that I've instituted on in a virtual house church that my moderators are taking a lot of heat for. But look, I trust my moderators. You know, I, the reason I made them moderators is because I, you know, they understand where I'm coming from. And so, if you're going to come into the virtual house church Facebook page and try to convert everybody out of keeping Torah. You know, out of keeping Sabbath and saying the feasts aren't for today and blah, blah, blah. Well, you're going to get booted. You know, I mean, you're walking into an environment where we have said, look, we created this environment as a place where we believe X, Y, Z. This is what we believe here. So don't come over here thinking you're going to convert everybody. You know, you're welcome to join us, but but don't come here trying to convert everybody. You know, and so that that's the danger that you run into in becoming a Torah terrorist, you know, uh, and going to your S- Sunday church. If your ambition is to try to convert everybody out of Sunday church, it's probably not going to work. <laughs> you know, being a trying to be a light and a testimony is one thing. And, you know, like I, I've gone to Sunday church with my parents. And anytime I go back to Massachusetts to visit my family, I go to church, you know, because I grew up in that church. You know, and I, there's a lot of people there that I, I like and enjoy. Now, I go there knowing 
that a it's probably going to be a very watered down message compared to what I'm used to. I'm used to chomping on steak every week, you know. Uh, so it's going to be a milkshake at best, but probably more like water. I'm going to listen to things that I'm probably going to disagree with because they're going to say things like, you know, you know, we don't need to keep the feasts and the dietary laws and blah, blah, blah. It's all nailed to the cross and yada, yada. I already know that going in. But as I've said before, you know, like my parents invited me to, to they have a winter home that they, they're snowbirds. When they live in Massachusetts, it gets cold. They go down to Florida. They got a, a nice little trailer home down there. Um, and invited me to their Baptist church down there uh, for e Easter, you know, and we're sitting there in this Easter service and the good old Baptist pastor, old guy, you know, is up there and he spends probably 20, 25 minutes telling everybody why we know that Easter isn't the real day that he rose from the dead and he didn't really die on Good Friday and that <clears throat> 40 days of Lent and all that goes back to, you know, he, he said <clears throat> what he preached clearly indicated he understood the truth, but then the inevitable word "but" came into the dialogue, and then the rest of the sermon was why we do it anyway. And so, you know, in that situation, I have to believe <clears throat> that my parents, who have heard both my wife and I express our concerns about this issue, knew what we were saying at that point because you know, you're not respected in your, you know, even Jesus wasn't respected in his own hometown. A prophet's not hailed in his own hometown, right? You know, I'm not saying a prophet or anything like that, but I mean, you know how it is. I mean, it's hard for any of us to reach our own family. They know who you are. They know what you've done in your life. They, you know, there's, for whatever reason, there's that lack of respect in, in trusting what you have to say. But when somebody echoes everything that you just that you've been saying, and that person's in a position of perceived authority, well, all of a sudden that just gave you some credibility. And all I had to do was look at them, like, yeah, you know, just, you know. So, you know, I, I think there's value in it, but we have to know what what our place is if we're going to do that. I guess probably the best way to say it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I totally see what you're saying. You know, we. <laughs> You know, if we're going into the, with the mindset that, you know, we're going to win everybody over, you know, you got to understand that it's the Father that reveals keeping his commandments, keeping his feasts and Sabbath. He reveals it to people. And I know I'm fascinated to find out what is the trigger in somebody's mindset um, that causes them to latch hold of this um, because it's it's taken the world by storm. I, we see it everywhere. But you know, you know, I haven't nailed it down. What exactly causes the scales to fall off somebody's eyes? Um, and 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 you know, just love people. You know, just love them and and understand that you know you if you compromise on your beliefs, then you know that's that's a witness to them, and and they'll be like, oh well, I see you you know compromising on the Sabbath. So why are you, why are you telling me it's important? You know, so just remember that your life is the light. And that's the the thing that draws people in to ask, you know, what is what have you figured out? You know, what why is this such a blessing to you? And and whenever you approach it uh, with the mindset of, you know, I'm just going to be a light and I'm just going to love people. You know, that's you know that's how we walk as the Messiah. We love 
him and we love our neighbor and uh, and and it's it's by it and often you know I hate whenever it gets so convoluted that you know I'm trying to share the feast it, it sounds like I'm bashing you over the head but it's because I love you because I want you to see the blessing because I want you to take part in just the deepness of it that I'm sharing with you and that I'm so excited about it and you know it's it's something that's caused because you love people and you want to share the the validity of the feast the the validity and the blessing of keeping the word you know that and and whenever that's confused with you know trying to bash somebody somebody over the head it's just it's tragic you know it's because i love you i want you to see this too you know but we're, you know we can get excited yeah uh, the I, i'm pretty sure it was i had done this uh uh secular ufo conference in new jersey um, they brought me in. It's like the 54th annual uh, UFO convention or whatever. And um, and I was brought in as sort of the token Christian to come bring a different point of view. But that conference happened on a weekend just before Passover. And since I was already in New Jersey, it's not that far of a drive to Massachusetts. So we thought, you know what, we'll, we'll, let's go visit my family. And so Sheila and I had this idea of sort of ambushing my parents with a Passover meal. You know, we're like, Hey, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll you know, dinner's on us <laughs> kind of thing. And, and we're thinking, you know, okay, you know, we can, we can go to the store and get some lamb. And, you know, we, we had this whole plan of what we were going to do to, to sort of Passover ambush my parents, you know, <laughs> like, Hey, Hey, dinner's on us. Right. Um, and as we're kind of thinking through all that, I get a, a message from my mom saying, oh, we're so excited. You know, I've got dinner on and everything. Like mom had already prepared dinner before we could really kind of initiate our plan. And so, I, oh, man, she's already got dinner planned and everything. So we just said, well, you know, let's just let's just pray about it and play it by ear. So when we got there, mom had dinner and then she knows not to make ham or anything like that with us. So she's, you know, my parents are cool with that, even though I catch them eating bacon and stuff all the time, you know, but they never, you know, whenever we're eating corporately, they, they never you know, put, put it in front of us. But, um, so mom had this whole thing set up. So we said, well, let's just go get some wine, you know? So we got some wine and we had some, uh, I'm trying to think, I think we might've got some matzo bread, uh, if I remember right. Um, and so you know, we got there and we, you know, oh, it's great to see you. Love you, blah, blah, blah. You know, oh, wow, it smells good, mom, and all that. Hey, we, we brought a couple of things, you know, if we can add to the dinner. And, you know, as we're sitting there, I said, you know, um, today's Passover, you know, and, uh, you know, we didn't want to make a big deal out of it or anything like that. But, you know, it's something that's become important to us. And we just kind of like to share it with you. I mean, it is the day that, you know, Jesus died. And I'll use Jesus, you know, instead of Yeshua with my parents uh, most of the time. Um, and we had the, if you go to, on the virtual house church, let me show you, if you go to <clears throat> virtualhousechurch.com and then in the main menu, if you, um, scroll down to where it says Passover, Pesach Passover, um, there's this right here, the Passover movie. And this is, what is it? It's a 50 minute, 49 minute, 37 second video. And it's, you know, basically a step up from a stage drama. You know, it's it's like it's like a theatrical play, but it's been filmed in such a way that it's, it's sort of like a a mini movie. You know, um, you know, if you're looking for like crazy cool, amazing production value, it's not there. But it's a good story, and 
my parents have been in theater with me. Uh, we started the drama ministry in our church together, and um, you know they've they've been a part of pretty much any play that I ever wrote and directed, produced at, at church as part of the drama ministry, and also did some um, you know outside community theater stuff with me and stuff too. You know they love the theater, so I thought you know this would be something cool that they could watch that would say everything that I want to say anyway, but in a way that they could probably receive it better than me, you know, trying to put it on them. And so we just had the meal that my mom prepared for us. We did a little bit with the breaking of bread and the, and the wine. And I said, you know, can I show you a video? I think it's really cool. And it's a, a, a stage play on Passover. And they said, yeah, sure. So we sat in a room and watched it and they actually really liked it. And if you watch the movie, it is a great um, way to kick the door open to some good dialogue afterwards and you know, I won't ruin it for anybody that wants to watch it but I, I think it, it's a well done story and the way everything plays out in the story is done in such a way that it, it naturally opens the doors for continued dialogue afterwards at least it did with my family so you know it it was it, I think that's the way it needed to be we came in there with sort of our Torah terrorist mentality of converting my family um, but this was a much nicer, calmer, there was no argument. There was no debate. There was just a sweet time of fellowship and a good time of discussion afterwards. Best I could have hoped for. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the feasts, you know, we had Zach Bauer at the, uh, the, the past conference, the, uh, declaring the end from the beginning or yeah, declaring the end from the beginning conference. Um, yeah. he was talking about Torah apologetics and how really, you know, defining first what sin is and showing the blessing and the, the, just the depth of the feasts is how, you know, we should really be approaching, uh, people with this topic, people who've been Christians for, you know, many, many years. Um, it's a big pill for them, them to swallow to hear that they've been missing out on something or they've not realized the value of something that it matters so much to Yahweh. Um, and so, you know, really showing the feasts to uh, Christians and to people who might be keeping the traditional holidays, um, you know, you want to show them the blessing that they're missing, not, necess not necessarily just you know, point and say, curse, curse, cursed, you know, um, because it's, it's the blessing that seems to, you know, make people think, oh, wow, you know, you know, it, it's, it's cool to learn about the feast. It's cool to practice it. And, and they see that, oh, wow, it's because it's such a blessing that Satan's tried to steal it from us. Um, so we have another question coming in from uh, Cassius and he asks, can Rob please explain a little bit about Ezekiel 37 and how it has to do with the ones who were never related to the Savior? How it relates to the ones that never... I'm not sure I understand the question. So Ezekiel 37 and how it has to do with the ones who were never related to the Savior. Is this a dry bones? Uh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, the, the bones represent, I mean, it tells you point blank, this is the house of Israel, right? Uh, you know, this is the famous story of, you know, those dry bones and they, the bones start to come together and then the the sinews and muscles and the flesh and everything comes together on it. Um, you know, 
uh, well, and also says this, it's got the two sticks too. Uh, let me let me just do a screen share so everybody's on looking at the same thing I am. Um, so yeah, it starts off prophesied of the bones, bones come together, all that. Um, when you get to uh, after it does the bone story, it talks about the two sticks. And you got the stick of Ephraim, you know, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions, and you have the stick of Judah. You know, moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions, and then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Both, they're, they're two different um, sort of visions, parables, if you will, for the same thing, in my opinion. Um, but it's easier for me to describe the two stick issue is because if it, when it's talk about Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom. That's the part that was divorced, Jeremiah chapter 3. And if you go back to, uh, what is it, I think uh, Genesis 48, I believe, where um, Jacob is prophesying over Joseph's sons, and Manasseh is the older one and should have been, you know, received the, the right-hand blessing, but he crossed his hands and put he put his hand over Ephraim instead of over Manasseh. And Joseph's like, no, 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 this is my oldest son. He goes, I know, I know, I, I, I got it. He says, you know, Manasseh will be great too, but Ephraim is where it's really at. You know, there's going to be, a, a, he's going to become a multitude of nations, Ephraim. And so the northern kingdom, uh, when they got dispersed into all the world, they became known as Ephraim because it became a multitude of nations. <laughs> by getting dispersed. And so you only have two sticks. There's not a third twig somewhere labeled the church. So if you are outside of the family, a non-Christian who doesn't believe in Messiah, then you're not in here. But if you have believed in Messiah, then you are grafted on, I believe. you're grafted. Some would say you're grafted on the stick of Judah because Messiah is of the line of Judah. And I understand the reasoning. Sure. Okay, but based on Genesis 48, I tend to believe, no, as a wild olive tree branch, I'm grafted into the stick of Ephraim, I believe, based on the prophecy. Uh, and reading the book of Hosea, I mean, if you read the whole book of Isaiah, Hosea in reference to what I'm saying here, I think it makes the most sense that, I'm, that we're grafted onto Ephraim. But either way, I don't care which one I'm grafted, as long as I'm on one of these two sticks, because there's only two sticks. So... Um, you're gonna be on one, or you're gonna one or the other, or you're not part of the family. I don't know if that answers the question, but that's the way I understand what's being asked here. Yeah, we have another question coming in from Alex, and he's asking, "I quit cold turkey going to church on Sunday while I was on the worship team as the drummer. Big deal in modern music. Did I do it the right way?" Um, I have a lot of people upset that I left and wondering what happened. Should I go back to play again? Well, I mean, pray about it, obviously. I think what's going to happen if you, because you're going to find yourself un unequally yoked because they're not going to be on your page. If you've given up Sunday to go to do Sabbath, um, you, they're going to be giving you trouble for it. And, you know, um, now if you're one of those that can do both, Great. You know, I mean, if, if you can maintain your sanity doing both and consider it part of your ministry, okay, 
you know, I, I wouldn't see any reason not to do it. I mean, if somebody asked you to play drums on Monday or Tuesday to, to lead worship or something, you know, would you do it? Sure. I mean, you know, probably, you know, um, so, I mean, you're just gonna have to pray about it. And, you know, I know for me, I couldn't hang out in a Sunday church for very long. It drive me crazy. You know, I mean, it's okay visiting with my family every now and then, but yeah, to me, I'm like, well, first of all, I'm a workaholic. So, you know, just taking a day off period is difficult for taking two days off. Forget it. You know, uh, so I've already taken my time off on Saturday. So Sunday, boom, I'm back to work and like happy, happy doing it. But if I wasn't that type of person and I, and I played an instrument and I loved what I, what I did and I'm considering it my personal act of worship, you know, this is where I'm giving back my gifts, talents, and abilities to God. Then that would be an opportunity for me to do so. I'd be like, okay, cool. You know, cause I'm a writer, you know, I'm a, I'm a filmmaker. If I have a chance to do that on Sunday, I'm doing it. In fact, this Sunday, I'm gonna be. I'm I'm on a roll right now, man. I'm. I mean, my creative juices have been flowing like Niagara Falls the last couple of weeks. I can't stop writing. I'm like writing like a maniac lately, and so you know, as soon as I'm done with Sabbath, I'm writing again. You know, so for me, that's my drum set. You know, um, the question would be whether you can do it in a way that still maintains peace of mind for yourself and not cause a problem in the church because you don't want to be a Torah terrorist while you're doing it. You know, it goes back to our previous discussion. All right. That's the last question that we have for um, this tour portion. If anybody else has any questions, please feel free to send them in on the chat. Um, you know, of course, uh, you know, not, I guess, do you have any other comments on this particular portion? Um, yeah, I actually wrote in, uh, what's this Deuteronomy chapter 11, uh, verses 22 and 23 for if ye shall diligently keep all these commandments, which I command you to do them, to love the Lord, your God, to walk in all his ways and to cleave unto him, then will the Lord drive out all the nations from before you and ye shall possess greater nations and mightier than yourselves. And I wrote in my, my notes on there, I said, that's the true IDF, the Israeli defense force. You know, the true Israeli defense force, you know, not knocking the soldiers over there. Those are fine soldiers and some of the, the best in the world, actually. But the reason they're constantly having to fight all the time with somebody is because, you know, if, if they would just get back to Leviticus 18 through 26, Leviticus 26 in particular, and he's like, look, if you obey me, I mean, I'm going to chase the weapons out of your land, the, 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 you know, the animals that could hurt you. You know, you, I'm going to do this. I, you're not going to, you will live in peace. You know, you know, one will chase 10, you know, or 10 will chase a hundred or whatever. I mean, no one's going to bother you if you obey me. And, you know, it's reiterated here in Deuteronomy. Then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you. You know, the Lord will do it. Yahuwah will do it. That's a true IDF right there. You know, and earlier I wrote a note that, you know, this is for our health also to, um, there's a promise of health in Deuteronomy 7, 15. And the Lord will take away from the all sicknesses and will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt on you. You know, if you just obey him. And, and, and this goes to, you know, Egypt and Babylon, you got a lot of same um, 
there's some similarities there. And, and the call of the last days is to come out of Babylon. Why? So you do not partake of her plagues. You know, people always say, well, Christians aren't appointed unto wrath. Well, that's true. They're not. Babylon is. But if you decide to hang out in Babylon, do what Babylon does, well, then you're going to get what's not, it's not supposed to be coming to you, but you've chosen to go where the wrath is coming, where the disease or, diseases and plagues are coming. You know, there's a reason that there's swine flu and things like that. I mean, you know, if you're going to disobey God, it's not going to go well for you. You're not going to be healthy. You're going to have people coming at you from every direction, you know, especially if you're living on that plot of land that, that is, I believe, the Garden of Eden, frankly. Um, but it's Yahuwah's land. It's his land. It's not the land of the Jews. It's his land. He's a landlord. He's got rules. As long as you're obeying the rules, he says, look, I'll, I'll take care of you. But if you're not going to obey me, you're going to, I mean, you wonder why the whole nations, all the nations of the world are always pointing their guns at Israel? Well, to me, I'm like, look, just if you guys would just read Leviticus 26 and as a nation commit to it, if you're going to call yourself Israel and say, hey, where is Israel? Okay. Well, Israel's got rules, <laughs> you know, and if you obey them, well, there's a tremendous reward for doing so. But if you're going to, you know, proudly proclaim yourself to be, you know, the gay, lesbian capital of the world and live a completely secular life and, and not obey the Torah and do everything opposite of what the Torah says, well, then, yeah, okay, you're going to deal with the consequences of that. I mean, I didn't say it. That's what it says here, you know. So and that was just one of the things that I, uh, one of the comments I had. I had a couple other little notes there. Um, we have someone uh, named Joff who wrote in a comment and said, uh, on a note about grafting into the cultivated tree of Israel, one thing that is important is in order to be grafted in, you must first be broken off of the wild tree first. Correct. We must break away from the world, from Babylon, and put away the pagan festivals and traditions, just food for thought. Um, so, you know, in this whole process, I know we're talking a little bit about, you know, going into Sunday church and and separating or not separating. But, you know, what are some more things that, you know, as you're separating from Babylon, you know, what are you finding, you know, things that you're needing to separate? You know, what are some areas that, you know, people should be looking into to separate from Babylon? You know, how do we separate from Babylon so we don't partake in the plagues? Uh, you know, you know what, what are some of the things that we can be doing to separate? Well, you know, I, I think it's an evolving process for a lot of us, like where you, you start reading, okay, first thing you're thinking, okay, 10 commandments, 10, not nine, 10. So for many of us, it's realizing the fourth is still very important, <laughs> you know, and, and actually going back to last week's Torah portion, last week's Torah portion uh, um, goes through the Ten Commandments again. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5 is where he gives the Ten Commandments again. And, you know, he basically lists each one in a sentence or two, each of the commandments. But when you get to the fourth commandment, I mean, he gives like four or five verses dedicated to that one commandment. You know, the fourth commandment has the most re textual real estate devoted to it in the recap of the Ten Commandments. You know, so I'm going, I mean, clearly this is important to Yahuwah. You know, this is a huge deal to him. And it's the only commandment that begins with the word remember. You know, so it gives all, and one of the things that we 
pointed out in our home study group was, you know, when the first time it's given, it's talking about four and six days, Yahuwah created the heaven and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested. So the Sabbath, originally, as it was first given to them, was described as something to remember the creation account. And then when you look at the, at the Deuteronomy recap of the Ten Commandments, it says, and remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. So there's another reason for the Sabbath day here. And um, Kevin, our, our group leader, he speculated, he says, you know, isn't it interesting that the first time the fourth commandment is given, it's a call back to creation. Six days God created the heavens and the earth, seventh day rested. So therefore, you rest to remember my rest. And then the second time it says, hey, I, I took you out of Egypt and now remember the Sabbath because of that also. And Kevin said, well, you know, if we go back to the idea of a, the, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day, then the millennial reign of Christ is the seventh God day of, of humanity history, historical rest. In other words, 6,000 years, God is striving with man. He's long-suffering. He's patient. He's working with us. He's like, okay, this is what I'm, this is my plan for you. This is what I've done for you. Just please believe it. Come on. I'm, I'm, I'm believing in you. I'm, I'm, I'm holding out for you. I'm chasing you. I'm you know, doing everything I can to draw you to me. But he's going to rest on that seventh millennial reign. Like, okay, all that striving is done. I'm bringing my kingdom down on earth. And you're either in or out. <laughs> you know, you know, if you're in, if you keep the commandments and you have a relationship with Yeshua, if you don't, you're out. You're either in, you're out. It's almost like, you know, this first I've ever heard of it. And, you know, Kevin was just throwing the idea out that God's like, okay, he's done with his, his work on humanity to try to draw us to him. It's like, you're either in or you're out. Uh, you know, if you're in, great. You got a thousand years to rest with him, hang out. It's great. You know, whatever we're going to be doing, I don't know. But there's a different paradigm in that thousand millennial reign, the thousand year millennial reign compared to the 6,000 years prior. I'm going, hmm, that's interesting. You know, something to think about, something to consider. Um, but so the biggest part of it, I think for me, in coming out of Babylon is realizing just how important that fourth commandment is and that we still have 10, not nine. And then the question naturally follows was, well, you know, you keep the whole Torah. Do you really keep Torah? Uh, you're not, you're a hypocrite. You don't really keep Torah. Blah, blah, blah. There's 613 commandments. Blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, that always comes out. When you look at the 613, they are just elaborations on how to do the 10. I mean, the first what four or five commandments are how you have a relationship with God, how you love him, how you relate to him, you know, how you serve a holy God. And the remaining commandments are our relationship with man. That's why Yeshua just distilled the 10 down to two. He said, look, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all of the law and, you know, and the prophets. So the 10 are hanging from the two and the 613 are hanging from the 10. You know, and it, but it all ultimately boils down to how do I love and serve a holy God, and how do I love and serve my fellow man? And your process of coming out of Babylon is learning how that 
how to walk that out. And I'm still learning. You know, we're all still learning. Um, you know, for me, I have settled on ditching the pagan stuff as much as I, I'm aware of. And as I become aware of new things, I'm like, okay, well, that's got to go too. You know, I mean, you, you sort of go from, okay, that was heavy. And, and you, you figured out that and you're walking that for a while. And then all of a sudden God shines a light on, you know, when you, okay, you got that one. Cool. Here's something else to work on. Oh, I gotta work on that. I mean, it took me, I don't know, three or four years to, before I started wearing tassels, you know, because uh, I wasn't convinced that, you know, as a New Testament Bible believing Christian with the Holy Spirit in my heart, that, you know, if I'm the temple, he's in me. What do I need stuff hanging from my clothes for? That was my attitude. But after three or four years of studying Torah and, and going through Numbers 15, going, well, you know, finally it just gets to you and you're like, yeah, I think we're supposed to still be doing this, <laughs> you know? And so then you do that, you know, uh, you start learning more about the feasts and what to do, what like, like, um, unleavened bread for a long time. You know, this is my seventh or eighth. I forget now year of going through this. Um, I understood, okay, get the leaven out. So you start uh, getting the leaven out of your house. And people say, well, that's just spiritual. You're supposed to get sin out of your life. Well, yes and no. Sure, there's a spiritual principle there that we should be trying to do every day of our life all year long, not just during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But if you go back and read the commandment, the commandment, because some people say, is it about cleaning your life out of sin or is it about baking goods? Well, the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's both. Yes, the principle leaven as being associated with sin is a principle, but leaven is also associated with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like leaven, you know. So, but the commandment is to get the baking goods out of your house. I mean, that is the commandment. So, you learn the process of okay. There's a spiritual principle, but then you say, well, wait a minute. No, there's actually. I mean, if I'm reading the commandment, there's actually go get the physical stuff out of your house that's considered leaven. So that's a physical, so that's a growth process. And I had been going through that process for a few years and understanding and trying to walk in that. But it was like literally this year that the light bulb went off in my head that, that I'm also supposed to be eating unleavened bread. I'm not just supposed to get the leaven out, but I am, the command is also, you shall eat uh, unleavened bread. And like this year's unleavened bread came and went. And I did, and I had been abstaining from leavened bread, but I hadn't been eating unleavened bread. So I'm going, okay, well, didn't get that one this year or last year or the year before, but next year I'm going to make a point of adding that to what I'm trying to do as I'm learning to walk this out and getting more and more revelation in doing so. I'm like, okay, I did it wrong before. I'll get it right this time, you know? And, and, you know, I, I have, and, and this may change, but as of today, my current understanding is as a new covenant uh, believer in the order of Melchizedek, what is left for me to still do of the Torah basically comes down to the Ten Commandments, the seat seat, the feasts, and the dietary. That's where I'm at right now. You know, could there be more? Sure, could be. But at this point in my walk out of Babylon, these are the steps that I have taken and I'm still taking, and I'm trying to walk out appropriately, accurately, according to the scriptures. So, 
you know, and that's why I created that page uh, coming out of Babylon is specifically to address that question because the videos that are on there will help people to begin to understand that. Awesome. Thank you. Um, our next question coming in is from Jay Cassius, and he asks, what is your opinion on black Hebrew Israelites and their teaching that only their kind can be saved? Oh, boy. Um, I think it's a bunch of nonsense. Um, in my experience dealing with these people, they're very militant, and it's just another form of racial prejudice. Um, I have yet to find anybody that's in that sect that has treated me with any measure of civility. As soon as we get into it and, and I express my um, disagreement with it, all of a sudden I'm a racist, I'm a pig, and I'm doomed to hell and you know, all kinds of – I mean, they're very – at least in my experience. I can't speak for everybody else, but in my experience dealing with this, these people, they're very hostile, very militant, and they're looking down their nose at me as a – you know. And some going so far as to say that because of my skin color, I'm an offspring of the Nephilim. <laughs> so, I mean, the whole thing gets crazy. But I just say, look, Noah and his wife had three sons. They all looked the same. You know, they, they would have – Noah and his wife would have reproduced after and produced the same. And I believe that there was less radiation to deal with in the pre-flood world. Um and because of that, I believe that there was less need for melanin. And Adam's name means red. It doesn't mean black, brown, or even pale, white, for that matter. He was probably more of a you know, Native American kind of skin tone, I suppose, reddish in color, which would be an appropriate amount of melanin probably for the temperate zone where he lived. And then after the flood, you had Shem, Ham, and Japheth that I believe all looked the same skin tone wise. In fact, the Cush, uh, his name means black. So I don't see any evidence that Ham was black, but I do see evidence that Cush was black. And Cush is Ethiopia. And Ethiopians are black. Well, uh, if you look at where a lot of Ham's ans uh, descendants went, they went into a climate zone where the sun is a whole lot hotter. And in those temperate zones where it's a lot hotter, God in his supernatural sovereign wisdom placed different types of plants that actually increased the body's ability to produce melanin to protect the skin against the harmful radiation of the sun. That's God's awesome model. You say, okay, if you're going to live here, you're going to eat this food. If you eat this food, you're gonna, your body's going to produce melanin. You're not going to have as much prob skin problems you know, because of where you live. But if you move further north, those plants aren't there. You're not going to need that. It gets colder, and so your body's going to start to metabolize fat differently. And, you know, Eskimos are very different physiologically than people who grew up on the equatorial plane. This is just all adaptation that God has placed, you know, in man, the ability to survive in these different temperate zones. So that's that's number one. It's, I mean, God doesn't care about our skin color for crying out loud. You know, if we're going to argue about melanin, okay, tell me what, you know, I laid out at the sun at the pool today. I, you know, I was out for, what, an hour? What sh tell me the shade that I need to acquire so that I can make sure that I'm in the in-group with melanin. Because, you know, if it's about melanin, I'll go out and lay out in the sun and make sure that I get qualified for, this, for the shade. 
and I need to know the shade. Somebody's got to tell me the shade because there's there's really black, there's brown black, you know, brownish black. There's you know more tan. You know, wh what's the shade? Give me the shade, okay? Um, but even if you go that route, if you think, well, it's all about the shade, well, the shades are all together with the whiteies in the plains of Shinar under the leadership of Nimrod, they're mixing together, all together, right? Uh, and then at the Tower of Babel, they're dispersed. And then, you know, God through Abraham picks Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel come out of, of, of that. And then they're all together in Egypt, mixing with other people because there's a mixed rabble that went out into the wilderness with them for 40 years. So they're mixing with them. Then they get together and they form this land of Israel that gets divided northern and southern kingdom. And then the northern kingdom, is the Israel slash Ephraim, got dispersed into all the world 2,730 years ago. More than that, actually. And we're thoroughly mixed with all the other shades there are on the earth. Thoroughly mixed with all the other shades there are on the earth. For twenty over 2,730 years. So to say that only this shade of people are true Israel is patently absurd. It's utterly ridiculous. And the, the, the slam dunk uh, nail in that coffin for me is Romans 11. It doesn't say only such and such skin color shade is Israel. It says cultivated olive tree, wild olive tree, believe in the cultivated olive tree, you know, Messiah, you're grafted in. I don't care what your nationality is or what your skin tone is. So the whole argument is utterly patently absurd, totally, completely illogical, and is nothing but another excuse uh, to foster prejudice, in my opinion. And and I'm and it angers me. You know, if you can't tell, I'm a little bit passionate about this because I have to deal with these people all the time. And I'm like, your argument is just ridiculous on so many levels, but it ultimately boils down to prejudice, in my opinion. Yeah, we we all bleed red. And uh, and whenever you you know got some green or blue blood, then we can start you know having a discussion there. But you know we're all human, <laughs> and and it's it just it's crazy that they they you know it's it's a really a racist position um, uh, that that is once again kind of you know trying to be an elitist mentality. It's no better really than Arianism that was going on. During, during the time of you know Hitler and you know their elitism with the way they they viewed the Aryan race, so uh, we have another question. Here. Here's the other problem I have that I have. I mean, it, it is Aryanism in the reverse. But the other problem I have is they'll point to the passages you know in, in Scripture and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and whatnot and say, "Well, black people are the only ones that fit these curses. You know, you're going to be taken away in ships and blah blah blah." Well, I mean, I would contend that the prophecy that was described there was fulfilled a long, long, long time prior to, you know, people being grabbed as slaves and brought to America, which is usually where they go. See, we were put in ships and dragged out of our native land of Africa and made the slaves to the evil white man in America. You know, so that's, a, that's talking about us. I'm like, okay, well, let's let's go with that patently absurd premise. I'm okay. I'll, I'll go with that for a minute. Um you are wearing the curse as a badge of honor. You see, this is me. And the people that I've had the most trouble with, I'm like, well, if you believe this is you, then this happened to you because of disobedience to Yahuwah. 
and and you and you want to claim that everybody in Africa is black, and you get get mad whenever a white person is depicted as a pharaoh or something in a movie. I mean, you know, if you put white people in movies about Egypt, everybody goes psycho because everybody has to be black. I'm like, well, okay, if you're gonna say that, then you had black people because you're saying everybody in Egypt is black, and all the pharaohs are black, and everybody's black, and so are the Hebrews. All the Hebrews and the Israelites, they're all black. So then you you have black people enslaving black people and you're mad at the white people i mean you guys are enslaving yourselves in that story and if you want to get out of the curse then the way out of the curse according to the same scriptures you're quoting is to obey god and the same people that were coming after me i was trying to get them to say you know look then get rid of christmas get rid of easter get back to torah get back to the feasts you know end your curse and they were calling me a heretic for that, because they were many of these people that I was dealing with are dispensationalist, preacher, rapture, you know, standard Christian wanting to wear the badge of Israel and, and you know, calling me a heretic for having the audacity to suggest that it might be a good idea to obey God and thumbs up and rah rah Chris Putnam when he was going psycho on me and calling me of the devil, you know, for, for trying to suggest that it might be a good idea to obey God. I'm going, something's not computing here, dude, because you're. I'm saying we should obey God. You're wearing a badge of honor saying that you guys are the ones that fit the curses, but the curses come from disobedience to God, and you're being mad at me for saying we should obey God. I don't get it. You know, it's just, it's, the people are crazy out there. I mean, they just are. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we Our next question is from Valerie, and she asks, what is the outer darkness spoken of in the millennial reign? When he talks well, about throwing them into outer darkness. Um, that's an interesting question because um, based on the biblical cosmology that I have embraced, um, I do believe that there is an outer darkness beyond the dome, which is actually, interestingly enough, um, well depicted in the Truman Show, the movie. The Truman Show. If you've seen the movie, you know, uh, Truman was trying to you know, go to Tahiti or wherever it was, and he heads out there and he runs into the wall. And he's walking along the edge of the dome and he sees a staircase. And he goes up the staircase and he opens a door, and right behind him, it's pitch black on the other side of that door, pitch black. And then Kristoff, who is the creator of the dome, tries to stop him and convince him to stay. He's like, you know, it's no better out there, but at least in here, you're loved and protected. And basically, at the end of the movie, Truman's like, no, nope, I'm out of here. And he walks off into outer darkness. And I'm going, there's that. But I'm also thinking that when it talks about the New Jerusalem and the, the kingdom that comes down and everything, that you're not going to need the sun and moon for light anymore because the, the light is going to emanate from... The from Yeshua, I think, ultimately. And so if you're in that kingdom, if you're in the um, New Jerusalem, well, you have the light of God. If you're out of the New Jerusalem, you're in outer darkness. So I think there's two, at least for me, I'm, I'm seeing two ways to look at the outer darkness in a physical, literal sense. All right, our last question is coming in from Eridavimin, <laughs> and they ask, 
Um, do you have anything to expound upon on the greater Exodus or Eric? His name's Eric. So Eric is asking for you to expound upon the greater Exodus. Well, yeah, in two minutes, that's not really going <laughs> to, um, we're not gonna be able to do that in two minutes. Um, I would direct you to, uh, Zach Bauer. He's got some great teachings on the greater Exodus. I talk about it also in my Ephraim awakening. Again, if you go to robschannel.com and in the main menu, click on Facebook notes, click on Ephraim awakening. And at the top of the page, there's a video there that describes that. But to summarize it into a bullet point, I would basically say that because the Northern kingdom has literally been dispersed into all the world to the ends of the earth, so to speak, that when God, when Yahuwah himself regathers Israel, as it's spoken of throughout the prophets, especially in the book of Hosea, but read Jeremiah 23 through 31, you know, Ezekiel 37, Isaiah 65 and 66, along with the entire book of Hosea. And you'll see that he's pulling all of us who are grafted in. And I maintain that I believe Romans 11 uh, and taking Romans 11 in conjunction with Genesis uh, 48 and the prophecy and the divorce of Jeremiah 23, I mean, Jeremiah 3, etc., that I'm grafted into Ephraim. And Ephraim was dispersed into all the world. So wherever you are in the world, if you've been grafted into the cultivated olive tree and you are part of the what I call the Ephraim awakening, then when the time comes, and I don't believe it has happened yet, that God is going to literally pull us from all the nations of the world and gather us together, probably... I would not be surprised if we end up at Mount Sinai again. Speculation, of course. Um, but others have suggested the same thing, that we might be ending up in Africa or whatnot, and that we're going to have a time in the wilderness with God. There's going to be a purging. There's going to be a going under the rod, so to speak, uh, to see whether or not you're worthy to continue on the journey. And then he will usher in, in a greater exodus, the whole house of Israel into the land of Israel in the last days and set up the millennial kingdom. So that, that's sort of a, a bullet point of it, but for a lot more detail, again, check out Zach's work. And uh, if you want to watch the Ephraim Awakening, it's also uh, in there. All right. That's all. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, you know, thanks for having the virtual house church again, Rob. It's been good as always. Yeah. Enjoyed uh, it. Thank, thank you. For, uh, asking questions and, and being part of our fellowship. We, we love coming together and being able to talk about the Bible and go through the portion with uh, everybody who's in the chat and over on YouTube. So also thanks to Kevin for moderating over on the YouTube chat. We appreciate you. All yeah. right. Without uh, further ado, we're going to go ahead and say Shabbat Shalom and good night, everybody. Take care. And until next time, uh, we'll, uh, we'll catch you on the flip side.